Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Benjamin, super excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I'm pleasured as well as uh, looking forward to your value to the folks who are listening to your podcast. Well, we've known each other for what almost ten years now, and and I'm excited to share your story because I've really seen you grow not just as a speaker, but as someone who's able to take that across multiple mediums and multiple platforms, as well as to grow in your own stature as a public speaker. And I think that's a really interesting take for many folks today. I'm looking forward to share the lowdown, the nuts and bolts, the behind the scenes. If anyone's interested as well. So, Benjamin, who are you? Perfect question. I think if you ask me from the philosophical sense, that's a perennial question that I'm asking myself, who am I as well? And I think that's a great question, at least for a start for inquiry. But anyway, and anyhow, what I do, I've been in the speaking, training, coaching scene for the past 12 years. And what I do currently is I run a boutique speech and well, a boutique training and coaching consultancy where we do a couple of things. And we like to think we do a couple of things pretty well. The first part is in terms of hitch communications. We help anywhere from Fortune 100 to Fortune 500 companies, their leaders or startup founders to perfect their speaking engagements. We help them to be authentic as well as effective on stage. So that's one leg of my work when I'm putting on my coaching hat or my trainer's hat. When I'm taking that off, I am a professional speaker. So pre-COVID, I actually had the fortune to fly to um, eight different countries in Asia where I was basically speaking to them about the the potential of the upcoming workforce, millennials and Gen Z. And I think with the real attempt to let them know that there is hope, there is potential in our upcoming generation, millennials like you and I, as well as Gen Zs and, and my interns and the people that are working for me in my company as well. So my role is really to be a bridge between the leaders of today as well as the leaders of tomorrow. So in also many words, depending on the hats I wear, what I do is really to support them in terms of their business agenda and get them forward. Outside of work, I am a very, very happy, although pretty exhausted father of one. My boy just turned seven months as of the time we are speaking. He's been a handful, but I am always like very, very present and enjoying how he's growing up to discover new capabilities, new abilities each and every single day. And I think that's the joy of fatherhood, which I believe you also share. Amazing. You've shared this in different channels, but how did you first get a spark of public speaking? Yeah. The backstory, actually, if I had to go there, it will take a bit of time to unpack. So I think I'll, I'll do the very, very concise version. I, I hadn't been the typical person you expect to be on stage for, for the matter. So as a premise, from 7 to 17 years old, I was studying boys' school. And being in a boys' school, we all know that you know, when boys are with boys and no girls, they don't give face. And I was oftentimes the butt of all jokes. I was much, much obese. And for that good 10 years, I was a serial bully victim. So I went through a lot of physical bullying, verbal bullying, a lot of emotional pressure or trauma, so to speak. And on top of that, I've always been very, very introverted by nature. So you wouldn't see me interacting with people whenever in 
large groups, I'm never the, 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 the person, the boy or the man of the party. I'm always like a wallflower. I think public speaking came to me rather than I was looking for public speaking. I still recall there was one juncture when I was like a P5 or P6 when I would return home back from school and my grandma would force me to take a bath. But the reason why I wasn't like wanting to go and bathe was that my eyes were totally glued to the television. And at that point, it was showing Mandarin debate. So in Mandarin, it was called 国际大专辩论会, so which stands for the internet and the inter-varsity debates in Mandarin. And I think, no, like something just called out to me because when I was watching them, I was like looking at them and they were all so eloquent. They were able to like have verbal sparring. They were able to use the beauty of language, although at that time, I, I didn't really understand what they were saying, that charisma, that presence, the ability to command and, and work the crowds. That was a seed that was planted within and into me when I was like 11 or 12 years old. Now, fast forward 10 years later, when I was searching and seeking my meaning, after a life coaching program that I took somewhere in my late teens, I discovered that although and in spite of me going through all those like a traumatic bully experience, I actually had a story to share. So one thing led to the other. I, I started to tell my story on media and people started to say, hey, you went through quite a bit, but seems like you've survived it all and you are able to tell those stories. Maybe you want to have more platforms to, to share and people started to invite me one after the other. So that was like my story of coming out in a very story angle. And I turned professional. In our world, we call ourselves a professional speaker when people actually pay you to speak. So we are no longer like a hobbyist or non-profit speaker. I think my moment of becoming pro was actually when I was studying on an exchange in South Korea. And I received an email and I had an organization say, hey, no, we want to have you to share your story as well as to train our young people in public speaking. How much do you charge? And that was the moment that I realized that I had a bit of market value, something that I could offer on a commercial sense. So that was the second chapter whereby I started to go pro. So those were the two highlights, if I could put it in my early 20s. That's interesting because the first transition is about you becoming a speaker and the second is being a professional paid speaker. Mm. And what's interesting is that there's an underlying growth curve of learning how to speak. And I think so many people in today's world just as terrified about public speaking as it was, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It feels like one of those very common, they say, phobias or fears or reluctance. So how did you learn with that underlying dynamic? There's, there's many ways to skin the cat. So I think for me, and I can't say for the rest, for me, when I realized that how it's, as, as you put it, it's, it's a fear that's so widely experienced and, and widely more suffered, so to speak, it then gives me a bit of assurance that, hey, you know, I'm not suffering alone. So every time when I go up on stage, it just gives me that liberation to know, hey, Ben, whatever you're feeling, it's human and it's as human as can be. So I think in my earlier stages was really realizing that one, it is a human fear. And two, a lot of people have this, I would say, underutilized or misconception that being young is a bad thing. So I think in the very early stages, being a young professional speaker, there's always the negative side to the things whereby, you know, people will think that you're inexperienced, young, you wouldn't like um, hold much weight. But I actually use that youth badge to my advantage. When I'm young, I actually can be a bit more audacious. I can make some mistakes and I could say I'm still learning. So I, I actually use a lot of what I felt as this, this kind of perceptions to, to my favor as well. 
So that was the second thing that worked for, for me. I think the third thing that I, I did consciously was that being a speaker for me, I feel uh, a great, the mark or the hallmark of great speaker is how hardworking you are off stage as well. So for me, I have always looked forward to the, the, the whole experience of speaking at conventions and meetings. But after that, I'll be just like uh, plonking my butt in the first row of all the other speakers and presenters as well. So I will have a little trusted black notebook to see, hey, what works about this speaker and what can be improved. So I think it's amalgamation of all this first-hand learning to speaking on stage, making mistakes and realizing that you don't actually get roasted or, or burnt that badly. You don't die from a, a bad speech and getting better over and over and over again. And when I see people still making mistakes in their 50s and 60s, I think that's humanizing and that's something to be celebrated rather than to be feared about. What's the worst speech you ever made? Because you just said it, you die bad speeches, you die. So yep. I yep. just got to ask. So my worst speech actually happened, I would say, a couple of years ago when I was speaking in Macau. And back then, I was going somewhere in my speaking career. And, and the funny thing was that I was the kind of person having that kind of energy that I, I just put myself out there. Say yes first and try to solve everything out there. It's the entrepreneur's hustle, if you can put it. This is the, the whole like the kind of spirit that I embrace. Little did I know that saying yes to a certain opportunity was, was going to set me up so bad. So what had happened was that I was already speaking for one of my lead insurance clients and they have a great presence across Asia. The only thing was that I have been speaking with them and I've been serving their stakeholders in English. And that was the language I'm obviously comfortable with. Until one time they say, hey Ben, we have a Mandarin convention. Can you speak in Mandarin? And I was thinking, okay, um, well, my, my Mandarin isn't that bad, but isn't that good either? You know, it's somewhere here. And I just said, yes. Little did I know that I had a runway for about two and a half months. Only after I, I said yes, I realized that I had to present to Mandarin audience. And they're not like Singaporean Mandarin, whereby our Mandarin standards are not that high. They are like mainland Chinese and to present in professional Mandarin. So there's the local culture, there are nuances, there's certain contexts that I had to operate within. So I had to frantically look for one Mandarin coach. I worked with her for practically for the whole two and a half uh, months. Sadly enough, it wasn't sufficient. It was the first time for me as a speaker to make all the mistakes that I, I, I tell my clients not to make uh, because I was so, so trapped up in fear. I still recall that the week that was leading up to the presentation in Macau, I, I was waking up in nightmare. So my wife could attest to that because she said at one time, I just woke up like 2 plus 3 a.m. in the morning and I was like um, gesturing, gesticulating, white gestures and was like saying, now, like, why did I marry this guy? Like, uh, what is this dude doing? Right? And I was like blabbering in, in Mandarin in my sleep. And then it was like, wow, okay. And all the way leading to the final day, my speech was at 11 a.m. I still could recall I couldn't sleep in that room, not because the room was, was bad, but I was just so like eaten up by the fear of not being able to perform. As insofar, I had all the preparation, the slides were done. I was just trying to nail everything now. So I woke up at 3, 4 a.m. on that day. I, I literally practiced all the way to 9 a.m. in front of mirror, rehearsing all my best lines, my first lines. And when 11 a.m. struck, again, like I mentioned, I made all the mistakes. I was looking at the slides because I just couldn't trust my voice, my content. And thankfully, that one hour was the longest speech I ever experienced. Usually for English, one hour just fly by. One hour in Mandarin was uh, harrowing for me. I think the worst moment came immediately after that because, you know, as a speaker, as a foreign speaker, people would still come over and, you know, take photos. So, you know, that you have the star effect. But the moment of truth was when I stepped into the elevator back to my, my, my hotel room at 20 plus floor. It was a very, very packed elevator. Obviously, there were a lot of people there. There were two ladies at the back of the elevator 
And they said something in Mandarin that I'll always remember four to five years down the road. They said in Mandarin, 早知道我们就不要浪费我们时间听他了。So in English, what it means is that the speaker in the main hall spoke so badly, he was such a waste of time. We shouldn't have wasted our time on him. And at that point in time, the facts were just in my in staring at me because I was the only speaker who spoke in the main convention hall and I was the speaker prior to the break. So they were basically saying that without knowing that I was actually at the front of the elevator. So that was my worst speech, I guess. I, I think, you know, for me, it was like a one speech that I always remember because it stung me so bad and it really tested me to say, Ben, do you really feel you're ready and deserving to go up any stages for that matter? Thankfully, the positive spin was that on top of my one speech, my Mandarin speech coach, I engaged another one from mainland China. And I just like had this double run of like coaches working with me. And June the next year, when I finally spoke in Hong Kong again in Mandarin, I realized that finally, 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 I, I learned to trust my voice. I was a lot more human, more authentic, and I managed to win the audience over. So that was the story of negative speech all the way pushing me to discover a new me, so to speak. Wow, that sounds like the worst nightmare for so many people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and... What's interesting, of course, is that you must have felt sucky, right? Mm-hmm. So there you were and you went up to your room to your 20th floor. And how did you process that? You heard the feedback. How did you feel about that? Well, I think the first moments, and I would share this sentiment as well, because I, I coach my clients, whether they're corporate leaders or startup founders as well, there are times whereby we're just not ourselves. There are times whereby we wake up on the wrong side of the bed and we say things that we shouldn't have said. Even though you know, our, our cognitive intelligence is telling us and this is the, the, the ingredients of a great pitch or speech for the matter. So I think the, the first very few emotions was I was beaten. I, I felt the, like the biggest loser in the, in the whole like, uh, well, event or world or in my network or whatsoever. And I, I just felt like locking myself up. So I recall you know, I, I just returned to the hotel room and I, I just went off for the entire day and not even like texting my wife for the matter. So for me... The processing of the emotions was strangely, it's just like me just letting everything and all the bad things just flow through me and feeling all those not so pleasant, not so positive emotions and realizing that going through the downness and then later asking myself, okay, now that you've wellowed enough in in self-pity, what are you learning from here? How can you use this as a way to fuel yourself for your next stage, your next speech, your next client. And again, I think, I, I, I do not know whether this is like a, a professional hazard for a professional speaker as well. We always believe, strangely, that we are a magnet for disasters. Why do I say that? It's like professional speakers thrive on the big stage because we tell stories for, for one good part of our work. And every bad thing that's happened will always be a fodder for a good speech afterwards. So again, I, I do not know whether I'm cutting short my processing, but you know, there was always that, that down finding yourself that you're telling yourself you screwed up. But again, being able to pick yourself up to realize that there's no perfection to be, to be sought or to be desired on stage. There is only a better. There's no point being perfect, but being better each and every speech. So I picked up myself fairly quickly and then that was how basically I rebounded the very same day. What's interesting is that, you know, I've known you, Benjamin, for so many years now as a human being. And what's interesting is that when I hear other people talk about you, they either say like, oh, this guy is super amazing, like a demigod. Or he's like, oh, Benjamin like totally oversells himself. And that's why I kind of hear on the side. And so I'm just kind of curious, what do you think about that sensation where people are like really admire you or they're saying stuff about you? Well, I... 
I, I would say I'm lying to say that as speakers, you do not strive for validation. I think that there's a huge part, again, as, uh, as people who come into this industry, because what kind of person logically would put yourself under the scrutiny of like thousands of pairs of eyes? So I think it takes a certain temperament as well as a certain kind of character to even step into this industry. So I would like to say there's this part of for all speakers that want to be a showman or showwomen for the matter. But for me, I like to say that I actually do not like that part. I honestly, honestly do not like being under the limelight and, and being adored or idolized. You know, I, I don't even know whether any persons would idolize me for the matter. But for me, I think every time when I go on stage is I learn to be a lot more and a lot more like myself. So I think that's how I manage the kind of, if the word is called tension or if the word is called expectation. But for me to realize that Speakers, sometimes we, we oversell ourselves. So for me, it's, I, I make a conscious effort to, to just, just be myself and to let them know that there's nothing inherently better or different from where I am on stage and where you are in your audience seats as well. In fact, I always try to strike it up as a common understanding and alignment that me as a speaker, the only reason why is maybe I've done certain things that will allow me to be like a vessel of knowledge or vessel of experience that could otherwise, in sharing all this, challenge you or nudge you to do the way you do or live the way you live your life slightly different. But by no means am I better than you inherently. So that's how I, I try to sort of like close the gap, if anything. Yeah, so again, we, we all understand as a speaker entrepreneur, we thrive on, on creating a brand that precedes us. So that's the commercial, that's the functional. But I think for me as essence, as a person, it's always really just coming to terms, coming to the same level and that, that's what works for me. What's interesting about that, of course, is that sensation is really the fear for so many people who are thinking about whether I should be a public speaker or whether I should share my story or whether I should be out there or excel, achieve, which is that fear of other people judging. So I'm sure you deal with that all the time with the clients you're coaching. How would you advise people to process that or think through it or get comfortable with it? Mm. And that one fear of fear of being judged by others, it's a very real and very commonly held fear by a lot of people. So when I'm putting on my coaching hat, usually I would take a very curious as well as inquisitive outlook to that. So for example, if I'm coaching you, Jeremy, I would say, when you tell me that you are fearing that people may judge you, can you tell me more about this fear? Who exactly do you fear being judged by? And oftentimes when I ask this question, it would go either deeper or it'll go in a way that encourages them to think of what are the judgments really about. So I think for me, when I'm being a pitch or presentation coach, it's really discovering the story behind the fear. And a lot of times people look at things from the surface because fear of public speaking and they think fear equals to all that standardized fear and hence to cure the fear is just one standardized cookie cutter solution to which all the books in public speaking would say, imagine your audience being naked put your hands this way. So it's very, how should I say, it's very functional. It's very, you know, just a band-aid. But when I actually come from that source and I realize what's the source of each and everyone's fear, then that's a very unique take. So I think to your question, how do I deal with that is one, understanding the, the story of that fear. So I've had clients whereby they fear being judged, not just because of the current case at hand, but maybe when they're growing up, they grew up in a very harsh childhood. Their parents, for example, people they're close, their teachers, their first seniors or first, first few elders, uh, actually penalize them or 
put them down in front of a public setting, in front of friends, family. And those kind of fears are what we call as traumatic experience and they become imprints onto us. On a certain level, when I surface this to my, 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 my students and my clients, they realize that, hey, what has been a fear to, for me all this while doesn't have to be a fear for me in the upcoming speech. So that's a bit of assurance. So in, in that sense, for me, it's always helping to challenge their, their mental and emotional conventions and say, hey, how can I create a new reality for you in this upcoming speech? In so far that all these are you know, the, the kind of like, the kind of experience, the live experiences that we've been carrying for decades. So that's, that's one way that I usually deal, whether for myself or for my students. I think the second way to deal with judgment is use the logical route. It's an over-exaggerated fear because most of us are actually more concerned about ourselves than anyone else. So a lot of times we feel that people are judging, are looking at us. If we look at psychology, for example, there's this exaggerated bias in terms of us thinking that people are thinking about us. Whereas most people are just thinking about themselves. So I would usually, you know, like point them to some references on HBR, on psychological articles and letting them know that, you know, all your fears are common, but are pretty much unfounded. I think the third thing would be in terms of negating that, that fear of judgment is to really get a, a dose of reality. So every time when my clients go up to speak, I would say, hey, speak to at least three to five trusted people and ask them what works, what can be improved. And don't have all your voices recite up there in your head. Go and speak to people and find out the truth, the real story that has happened. And oftentimes when they actually do that, they realize that the notion of them being a bad or terrible speaker or lousy speech, you know, it's such a gap between what people say, hey, that was, that was decent, you know, I, I got value, you know, you're too hard on yourself. So it's about finding evidences to, to put them and set them on the right track. For those who work through that fear, what does the right track look like from your perspective? I mean, right track obviously could mean like the right end goal, which is to be the world's best public speaker. <laughs> but when you say right track, what would you say or show that the client is now in the right zone or on the right trajectory of improvement? Mm. So for me, I think it is one that you are able to forward yourself sustainably as a, as a person. So for me, as a, as a coach working with my students or my clients in, in their public speeches, presentations or pitch, it's never to, to swing to either extremes. Like one, you don't think that, wow, you, you just crushed it. You can go in with your, with your eyes blindfolded and then you can totally wing it. I think that's a delusion. But also not to the other extreme, but you feel so paralyzed and so fearful of each and every presentation. So for me, I think what I do is I would always recommend my clients to record or video record their pitch. One is that it's not just for my sake, but it's for your sake as well. So as painful as it is, I, I don't know, Jeremy, do you watch yourself presenting or speaking for that matter? Do you listen to yourself? Yes, it's an occupational hazard, but not all the time. I would say maybe one out of every 10 video podcasts, I would have a quick peek here. Good enough. At least for my corporate clients or my startup clients, most of the times they never ever watch themselves. So I, I, I would then challenge them, if you never ever watch yourself, then how are you ever going to get at least a personal perspective of yourself? So one is, I think, to answer your question squarely, like, like what, what's the right way or the, the middle ground, I think is one to develop a fair enough relationship with yourself. So one is, you know, you need to oftentimes at least watch yourself and get into a reasonable terms and reasonable relationship with yourself to, to be able to believe what you say. Because if you're saying something and you're listening to that and you think that's BS, then that's pretty off. But it's also not to overly idolize yourself. 
So that's that's one point. I think two is to realize that you're always a work in progress. So each and every speech and presentation, I would do that for myself as well as to my, my students as well to do a proper debrief. So what works, what can be improved. And oftentimes in the spirit of improvement and continual improvement, you'll find areas that are either glaring, whether in terms of pause fillers, whether in terms of energy, now, as I'm doing this podcast as well, you know, I'm receiving feedback that I'm banging the table sometimes as well. So it's being mindful and being conscious. So I think when you are able to look at yourself consciously without overly harsh judgments, but to be objective to see where are you shining at and what you need to improve and have a healthy relationship at watching yourself, listening yourself and being able to better yourself. I think that's pretty much where I, I should lend my clients towards an upward trajectory for them to become a better speaker each and every time. What's interesting is that as you build out this coaching practice on public speaking, I've seen that you've really innovated in what I call being across multiple channels. So obviously using not just public speaking channels like conferences and webinars, but also Facebook and LinkedIn and different approaches. So tell us more about what that journey was in experimenting with different platforms and modalities. So for me, I guess if you're an entrepreneur or if you're a, a young professional who's listening to the podcast, I, I think from a very, very early stage, I, I realized that one visibility counts for a lot of things in life. Or like it or not, there's this term called out of sight, out of mind. So for me, I recognized at a very young stage of my well speaking, training, entrepreneurship career that you're only as good as the kind of impressions as well as the, the visible perceptions of you being put out there. So one, I couldn't, directly compete with my peers. And back then when I was starting out in this training industry, it was rough, it was hard, it was difficult because who would buy someone who's you know, fresh out of college with spiky hair, mid-20s, where you know the average peer could be someone who's been like a communications expert. You know, I, I've been speaking, I've been training people. I realized that I had to win on some levels. Otherwise, I couldn't even get my foot into the door and much less get the opportunity to work with clients. So for me, at the very, very start of my career, I, I realized that it's important to be visible and to be on some level omni-platforms and to be in, on the platforms that matter. So for example, I do not have as yet many clients or stakeholders on TikTok. But am I thinking about being on TikTok? The answer is probably yes. So one is to the experience of being on multiple modalities, putting yourself out there. I think one is a prerogative, so I do not try to overthink it. Number two, I try to also realize that, you know, what's the value that I could still uh, transmit cross platforms as well. So for example, on LinkedIn, I tend to be a bit more quote-unquote philosophical. You have a stand, a lesson, a point to make. When I'm on Facebook, for example, I, I tend to share maybe the, the familiar side of mine, my, my family, who I am, the journey I've been. And I think, again, it's just using the right tools to grow your visibility so that you can do the work that you love to do, you like to do. And that's just part of business for me. I do not like sort of go too deep into it. One interesting dynamic about it is that I've also seen you look at speeches that are being made in different dynamics. I really enjoyed your teardown of political speeches in Singapore during the last election. Tell us more about how you explored that series and what was your takeaways from trying that approach? For, for context sake, for your viewers, during the last general election, I started off this very short like pet project or like 
passion project called Politically Speaking Singapore. So it's called PSS for short. I think I was reasonably inspired by how YouTube, there's always a, a YouTube video about another YouTube video. So someone's like reviewing something, someone's like commenting on something. And this is something that's so staple and common, right? Like commentary. So when you watch a soccer match, we have this hopefully smart enough or wise enough person, or at least someone who's giving entertainment. So for me, I, I realized that there was a lot of values and lessons to be had in terms of how our political figures were communicating as well. So I did one, which was, I think, pretty well received. I wouldn't name the character, but she is a female general at the previous uh, general election. So for me, it was uh, like I had a few intentions behind that. One was to really use everyday moments as teaching lessons because I think sometimes we do not need to look to the West for answers because a lot of times when I'm, I'm doing speaking, training and coaching in Asia, we always have this conception or misconception that the best speakers are always in the West, in the US. But I think in Singapore and Asia, they are great as well as very positive role models to learn from. But obviously what I was doing was more on the negative side. So anyhow, I, I realized that one, everyday moments. Number two, I just wanted to encourage and expand the dialogue of what it means to communicate well. So that was where I wouldn't say a tear down, but more like a blow-by-blow -blow analysis of you know what was working. If I wanted to sort of achieve a better or persuasive effect, instead of saying this, how would I say that? It was quite a fun journey for me to produce the, that series. And I think as a result of that, I managed to get a new client as well. So it wasn't just like for hobby sake, but it's a bit of strategic reasons as well. So that worked out for me. You mentioned something interesting, which was Asian role models for public speaking. I'm so curious about that because that's so true. If you ask me right now, off the top of my head, who are the role models for public speaking, I'll say, Martin Luther King, JFK, at least those are the top two off the top of my head. Obama, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Yeah. So a lot of Western role models, especially for people coming from Southeast Asia. So who are the regional or local benchmarks or role models that people could turn to for public speaking? When we look at the West, those, those are the usual household names. But I think increasingly in Asia, whether it's more of like entrepreneur or corporate leaders or even individual personalities, I'm seeing a surge of people just using very plain media platforms like TikTok to, to voice themselves and to basically share the perspectives. But if I'm going to answer your question squarely, the person that comes to my mind is actually the founder of Evolve and one championship. His name is Chatri. Backstory, yes, he did study in the States, but he's a Thai by descent. And I especially like that he has a very Asian outlook and take to the way he runs business as well. So it's never like, for example, sometimes when I see US speakers, I'm generalizing here, sometimes when I see US speakers as well, there's always that being brash, being aggressive, being like bam, bam, bam in your face. Uh, when I hear Chatri is, he speaks with a lot of humility. And I, I, again, generalizations here, there isn't like an Asian-ness or like Western-ness, Western-ness for that matter. But I, I feel he is a great Asian speaker that I look up to because I think he embodies a lot of the Asian story, the underdog, if you would. How, for example, he had to go through a lot of trials and tribulations in his growing up years. He talks about his stories, um, how he was struggling in Thailand and Bangkok, and, and, and he brings that out. He talks with a lot of Asian outlook as well, so using Asian proverbs. So I think we go down to the rhetorical devices. And many times he is also not that, for example, again, in your face, very, very measured as a speaker as well. So those are the things that I, I feel stand up for me about him. 
That's a great example, and I think he's an awesome speaker. I got to hear him a lot more actually back in the、uh, boom days of Clubhouse. <laughs> I think that's where I got exposed to his short form public speaking. And after that, I think I was able to see a little bit more of his long form after that.、Mm-hmm. And great guy, have an MBA. Starting to wrap things up here, I'd love to ask you, Benjamin. Could you tell us about a time that you were brave? Well, I would say the moment that I felt really brave was me not giving up in that hotel room when I told you about the story that I had a speech that totally bombed. For me, that was one of the I would say the lowest moments of my professional speaking career because I literally fell on my my face flat in front of about four hundred plus audience as well, and they had high expectations, but I just couldn't deliver. And for me, I think bravery this. If you look at bravery and what bravery means, you know it means a lot of things to different people. So some people think that bravery means that you need to have like a leading a lot of people, going through a massive, huge endeavor with like a you know, running a big corporation. But I think for me, is being brave for me in that notion was that was my lowest, most humiliating, and most confronting moment. But I told myself that if I could live past today, I can live past another day. So that was, I feel, I hadn't give up on myself, and I could take the easy way out to say, you know, let's just do English professional speaking, which is what I'm being booked for. I could be comfortable with that, but for me, one part of me just didn't say no, and I hired a second Mandarin coach, and I pursued that. I, I listened to this China app called Simalaya, which is a Chinese podcast app, thirty minutes every day for a good six to seven months without fail. And for me, being comfortable in the uncomfortable, in the professional sense, and in that trajectory, even like putting myself out there, and I was marketing myself after that to say, "Hey, I can and I will speak in Mandarin." I think that was a moment that I felt I was most recently braved. Amazing. One thing you shared consistently is you said the phrase "never say no," and you said that multiple times in this conversation. When you wouldn't say no for taking up your public speech, your first ever paid one, not saying no to the first Mandarin speech, and not saying no to your second Mandarin speech, and trying again in Hong Kong. So, what does "never saying no" mean to you in your context? I think "never say no" for me, it's like.、Um So I wouldn't say it's absolute. Like everything, I would say yes. I never say no equals yes. I, I think there are there are times where I definitely say no as well. So, like for example, if opportunities are not aligned to who I am, if I'm being asked to speak on something, I definitely do not have any subject matter. So obviously, I wouldn't go to a CEO conference and assume that I have the ability, the credibility, or the experience to teach people how to scale and grow companies. All those are clear no's for me. But I think in a domain where I feel at least empowered to say yes, is that I would ask myself one. Is do I have concrete past as well as potential ability to make a difference for people? And if the answer is consistently yes, then I would be able to skirt past as well as cut past all the well barriers internally and externally to make sure that I turn up, show up, and be of value to the other person. So I think I'm guided by at least as a speaker, we know that we oftentimes cannot win over everyone. But if in the group of audience, at least one person comes to me and say, as a result of what you've said, as a result of what you share, you've given me a bit of hope. You've given me a new perspective, a shifted paradigm for me to look at my life, my situation, my challenge in a slightly different manner. I felt this is what guides me to to have the kind of notion to say never say no to an opportunity that could allow people to say yes to their own. So that's just kind of reframe that I have. But in no ways and by no means am I saying that you know I'm I'm just like very very like blatant or, or indiscriminate about taking everything on. Yeah. How do you build the wisdom or judgment to be able to? Know when it's time to say no versus when it's time to say yes. 
Well, I, I put the smart people in my room as well. I have like a mastermind groups whereby they are speakers as well as entrepreneurs, people who know me and they, they skill and they grow alongside with me. I have mentors as well. So sometimes when I feel that, you know, being individualistic in my decision is a bad thing, I would just turn to them and say, hey, I am thinking about this opportunity. There's pros to this as well as merits to, to be had. But there's also a few things that are holding me back. You knowing me and you knowing who I am as a person and where I'm heading towards as a growth trajectory, do you think this is something that is worth for me to take on? So I think, again, as a young professional, you needn't struggle or have all the answers out on your own. You should always have trusted and well-intentioned people to surround yourselves with and then hear it from the crowd. So that's a very simple quick fix for me. So I, I never always assume that I should have all the answers on my own. If you could go back 10 years in time, back in 2011, you know, travel back in time, where were you back then and what advice would you have given yourself? I was studying in my penultimate year, my third year of uh, university. I was studying accountancy at SMU. And I think the advice I would tell myself is don't give yourself too much heat and pressure to figure it all out at once. Because I think at that point in time, I was really, really well disgruntled, for the lack of a better word. I wanted to figure out like how my life and what my life was going to be like in the next few decades. So there's this like, uh, well, call this like quarter life crisis or the early existential crisis. So while my, my peers were all like uh, focusing and trying to get into the big four, I was asking myself, you know, I know for sure I wouldn't want to step into the big four to become an accountant, but I still do not know what I want to do for the rest of my life. And fast forward, I think 10 years later, I'm pretty much a, a lot more ease and I am comfortable not knowing everything. And I'm comfortable, like for example, not knowing when my next client will come. I'm just having belief that if I'm putting myself out there with good work and good words from people who trust me, the right people will come by. The right opportunities will come right knocking on my door. So I think speaking to the band 10 years ago, it's really having that quieting down and quelling that, that voices of like anxiety, disgruntledness, frustration, upsetness. I was just this like a bundle of mess inside, but maybe I, I, I sort of conceal it really, really well. And telling yourself that life happens in seasons. And if you are going to be in the, the season of harvesting, you will come to the season of harvesting. But if you're in the season of, like, for example, frigid coal, learn to realize that there are lessons to be had and lessons to be learned in a season whereby it doesn't seem like there's a lot of activity. So that's pretty much the wisdom I have for someone, you know, myself, 10 years ago. Awesome. Wrapping things up here, I'd love to paraphrase the three big things I learned from you today. The first that I learned from you was really your career as a public speaker about how you started out and how you also became a professional paid speaker. And also I think there was a real moment of vulnerability about you sharing about your public speaking disaster in Macau. And thank you so much for being honest and real about what that experience was really like for yourself and how you felt it and how you processed it and eventually went on to do it again and better at Hong Kong at a second time. The second thing I really enjoyed was really you talking about judgment and really about how people kind of see who you are on stage versus who you actually are and how you think about not just how you try to articulate and convey who you are as a human person now on the public space, but also how you coach other clients to get from point A, which is that fear, to point B, which is being on the right trajectory. 
And the last thing is, thank you so much for sharing really about your spirit of courage and bravery, especially around never saying no, which doesn't mean, like you said, always saying yes. But I think going to how you also have the wisdom and judgment to figure out and just kind of take life and move forward all the time. Thank you so much, Benjamin, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me and the pleasure was entirely mine as well. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.